Did you know, I bet you didn't know this, did you know that there is a conference called, or it's dedicated to boring stuff? Yeah, it's called, appropriately, the Boring Conference. Right there it is. This is boring. That was on their opening day, apparently. The conference's website claims it is a one-day celebration of the mundane, the ordinary, the obvious, and the overlooked. James Ward, who authored the thrilling book called Adventures of Stationery, uh, and is a creator of a blog called I Like Boring Things, launched the idea in 2010 in response to the sudden and tragic cancellation of the interesting conference. So, speakers have addressed the following topics. This is a real thing. Sneezing, toast, the sounds made by vending machines, the shipping forecast, always a thrilling one. Uh, barcodes, yellow lines, assorted arcane features of the Yamaha PSR-175 Portatune keyboard, inkjet printers of 1999, ice cream van chimes, how to cook elaborate meals with the equipment found in a hotel bedroom, and similarities between, the, between 198 of the world's national anthems. Makes you want to go, doesn't it? Yeah, previous highlights have included a talk about electric hand dryers by a man so fascinated by them that he installed a Dyson Airblade in his house. And another really good one, highlight a speaker who rollerbladed around the hall while reading from a book about the relative weights and densities of different types of metal. Can you believe it? Yeah. Sound a little boring? It's supposed to. Well, actually, though, the conference has been a sellout hit because it has a serious aim to take subjects often considered trivial and pointless, but which, when examined more closely, reveal themselves to be deeply fascinating. And in that way, even the most mundane of topics can become a source of joy. Joy. That is the theme of the third Sunday of Advent. On the Advent wreath that we light each week, uh, the candles for the other three Sundays in Advent are purple, which is the liturgical color of repentance. Um, you may not have known this, but originally Advent was practiced uh, as a season of reflection and repentance, much like Lent, fasting, that type of thing, a time of cleansing out uh, our souls, so to speak, and resetting the focus of our lives on Jesus and his coming as judge and king. But on this third Sunday, the candle is rose, which is the color of rejoicing. It's meant to be a reminder that even in the midst of fasting and repentance, even in the midst of the difficulties and turmoil or just the mundaneness of life, there is cause for great joy. Our God who loves us is coming again. And when he comes, all things will be set right. All things will be made new, including us. Amen? Well, a couple weeks ago I was praying, and I sensed Jesus saying to me, you know, Pat, you haven't been having much fun lately, and that's not good. And he was right. 
course, when isn't he right, right? He's always right. Over the past few months, maybe even longer, I think I've let the busyness and the turmoil, some of the difficult situations I've faced, along with just the everyday mundaneness of life and ministry, drain the joy right out of me. And I wasn't having much fun as a result. So I've been thinking about that and, and praying about it, and then lo and behold, I get to teach on joy. <laughs> so what I'm sharing with you today is what God is working on in me right now. I, I believe that in this season of Advent too, Jesus wants all of us to grow in our experience of his joy. Would you like that? I would like that. So let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for um, the joy that you give us. Thank you for the life that you give us. Thank you for the hope that we have in, in you, all the things that Advent is about. And I pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would now come and work here among us, even as I'm speaking this morning, and cause your joy to grow in us, cause the experience of that joy to grow in us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So I'm going to read to you to begin an entire chapter of the Bible but it's kind of short. It's only 10 verses. This is Isaiah chapter 35. It says, The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. And then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, re grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Let it be so. Amen? Yeah. Amen. Well, I am not an expert in New Testament Greek by any means, but I do know just enough to be dangerous and enough to have a favorite word or two. And one of the my favorite words in New Testament Greek is telos. Telos means the end. And not just the end in the sense of being over, though, like the end of a movie or the final page of a book. Telos carries the idea of something having reached its fulfillment. So an oak tree, for example, is the telos of an acorn. Telos is a goal that's been achieved. It's a dream that's been fulfilled. Well, chapter 35 uh, of Isaiah that I just read 
is describing our telos. He's describing the telos of all of creation, actually. This is where we are headed. You know, this is what we were created for. This is what awaits us when Jesus returns. It's not the end of everything. It's a new beginning. It's life absolutely saturated with everlasting joy. I mean, how could we not worship our God who created us for this, right? How could we not? How could we not worship Jesus who came into this world and suffered and died all to make this telos possible for us? Our God is amazingly good, isn't he? I mean, he really is. And here's what we believe as followers of Jesus. What we will experience in its fullness when Jesus returns, we can begin to experience and grow in our experience of now because the Holy Spirit, the presence of God himself, has been poured into our hearts. As the famous uh, French Jesuit theologian uh, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin said, joy is the infallible sign of the presence of God. Joy is the infallible sign of the presence of God. And we who have put our trust in Jesus have the presence of God living in us. So we ought to be the most joyful people in the world. And yet, <laughs> it is so easy, as I have experienced lately, for that not to be the case, isn't it? Joy is kind of a hot topic in our world these days. Uh, Marie Kondo wants to spark joy in our lives by getting us to clean out our closets. Just a couple of months ago, Laura Holson uh, wrote an article for the New York Times entitled, Are We Living in a Post-Happiness World? She wrote, joy, it seems, is everywhere these days. It's used to sell boxes at Ikea. It's included in ads for drinks at McDonald's. There are t-shirts that tout joy as an act of resistance. There is the Chasing Joy podcast. And a number of books are being published every year devoted to joyful living. But if joy is everywhere, she asks, why does happiness feel so elusive? According to the World Happiness Report, happiness in the United States is declining. Americans said they were less content in 2018 than a year earlier, ranking number 19 in the happiness index behind Australia and Canada, and only one slot above Czechoslovakia. Come on, people. Yeah. So, so are we living in a post-happiness world, she asks. Now, I've heard many sermons over the years explaining how joy and happiness are two different things. Happiness is a superficial and transient emotion, it is often explained, while joy is a deep inner zest for life. And I'm sure there is some truth in that distinction. Our emotions, of course, go up and down. We all go through difficult seasons or times of grieving when we're not going to feel happy. That's normal. It's to be expected. It's just part of life, even part of the Christian life, right? That's, it's a normal part of the Christian life. 
But if that lack of happiness becomes our default mode, then I think there's something wrong. If the joy that we claim to have in us doesn't manifest itself much of the time as an enjoyment of life and an experience of happiness, I question just how real that joy actually is. As St. Teresa of Avila once prayed, Lord, from somber, sullen, serious saints, deliver us. Amen. And I would add, especially if it's me, right? So if Isaiah is painting a picture of our future, and it's a future overflowing with joy, and if the Holy Spirit really has come to live in us, bringing with his presence a deposit of that joy, why then are our lives often so joyless? Why is real happiness so fleeting for so many of us? Well, to talk about that, I want to look at a second passage of Scripture. Adam and I have both mentioned how for the next year we're going to be using what is called the lectionary to select our passages to teach from each Sunday. There's, there's a long history of reading certain Bible passages on certain days. Some Jewish sources claim the tradition goes all the way back to Moses. Well, that might be stretching it a bit, but it certainly goes back to the early centuries of the church. And one of the things we love about using the lectionary is that it means that we are in sync then with thousands and thousands of churches and millions and millions of Christians who are all reading and all talking about the same passages on the same day that we are. I think that's just a powerful connection with the worldwide churches, and it's kind of cool to at least give it a shot, see how it goes. The lectionary we're using has four readings for each Sunday. It has a psalm, another passage from the Old Testament, a gospel reading, and then another from the New Testament letters, one of the New Testament letters. And then over the course of the year, like we've been saying, these readings tell the story of the life of Jesus and the story of his church. Well, we've already heard from Isaiah this morning in the Old Testament, and now I'm going to read from the Gospel. This is Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 to 6. Speaking about John the Baptist, and it says, When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? And Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Well, my guess would be that John the Baptist, sitting in that prison cell, was not experiencing great joy. You know, he was probably wondering if his whole life and ministry had been a waste of time. Yeah, he thought he had been heralding the coming of the Messiah. And John's expectation was that the Messiah would come as a king like David uh, to bring freedom to Israel, deliverance from Rome, and restore righteousness to the land but there was no sign of any of that happening. 
John had thought that Jesus was the one. So John couldn't understand why nothing huge and messianic was happening. You know, he couldn't understand why Jesus hadn't done anything revolutionary, anything cataclysmic. John probably thought he had got it wrong, that Jesus wasn't the one after all. And John probably, as a result, felt like a failure, like he'd wasted his life and his ministry pointing people in the wrong direction. And yet he'd heard the reports about the miracles that Jesus had done. And they were impressive miracles. The sick healed, the blind seeing. But at the same time, it was only a few people who were being impacted. It wasn't really changing the world. It wasn't what John expected to have happen. So John sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or did I get it wrong? like I think I did. Should we expect someone else? Jesus didn't give John a yes or no answer. You ever notice how he does that a lot? (laughs) Yeah, right? Instead, Jesus paraphrased the passage from Isaiah that I read just a few minutes ago at the beginning, Isaiah 35. And John would have recognized those words immediately. Any good first century Jew would have recognized that and would have known that those words were the promise of God's kingdom coming. By quoting Isaiah 35, Jesus was saying to John, John, the problem is your expectations are way too small. That's why you've lost your joy. Not because you wanted too much and were disappointed, but because you expected too little. You thought I was going to come and start a political revolution, but my plan is to make all things new. Look at what I'm doing, John. I'm doing some of what Isaiah said would happen when the kingdom comes. If even just a couple of people, a couple of blind people, have regained their sight through me, or if it seems like I've only healed a few, a few people. It still means that the kingdom is starting to come through me. And if the kingdom is starting to come, even if it's coming just a little bit right now, you can be sure that one day everything Isaiah prophesied will come true. Why is it so easy For we who have the Holy Spirit, the presence of God himself living in us, to live lives that are not overflowing with joy. Why is our happiness so fleeting? Could it be that like John, our expectations are far too small? On Cyber Monday, I bought an Amazon Echo Dot. You know those little speaker things? I actually bought two of them because it was a better deal if you bought two. And they were pretty inexpensive. I had Amazon points to burn, so uh, they cost me next to nothing. And I bought them with the expectation that they'd be kind of fun to have and play around with and they would spark some joy in my life, right? And I'm sure I'll get some use out of them. I actually gave one of them away already. So I'll get use out of the one I have left. Um, If nothing else... They look kind of cool sitting on the shelf there. 
I tried messaging Adam, but he couldn't send a message back to me, so I don't know. See how it works. Yeah, he tried. But as, as buying anything to spark your joy often goes, any sense of happiness or joy they brought me was pretty fleeting, to say the least, right? Now that goes. Yeah, we've all been around the block long enough to know that buying that new computer or that new pair of shoes or a new car or even a new house really isn't going to be life-changing. The thrill wears off pretty quickly, right? Yeah. But we do all too often still think that, you know, when I get that new job or that next promotion or when I get married, or when I have kids, or when the kids leave home, or when I retire, or when I win the lottery, you know, that's going to fill my life with joy, right? It will make me truly happy. I'm sure of it. I'm sure it will. And it probably will for a little while. But Jesus is saying to us through these passages today, your expectations are far too small. As C.S. Lewis once wrote, we are like kids playing in a mud puddle and so caught up in what we're doing that we turn down the invitation to instead go to the most beautiful beach in the world. This is God's invitation to us today. Enlarge your expectations. Embrace everlasting joy. See, I am convinced, speaking from personal experience, that the reason our level of enjoyment of life is so fickle, our experience of day-to-day happiness is so fleeting, is because our sights are set too low. There are a lot of things in this life that can bring us joy and gladness. You know, family and friends, good food, good beer, uh, vacation, holidays, success, prosperity, New toys, whether you're an adult or a kid, right? Just different toys. Um, They're all good things, too. They're all meant to be enjoyed. But as an ultimate source of joy, as the thing we need to have for our joy and happiness, they are totally unreliable. In fact, to make anything in this world the thing we need to have to be happy, including the things like prosperity or marriage or, um, you know, the kids leaving home, whatever it is. Anything we need to have to be happy is to turn it into an idol. And anything we turn it into an idol, no matter how good it seems at first, will end up consuming us in the end. It'll rob us of our joy. Some degree of disappointment is inevitable. And here's the thing. If our heart is set on any of those things as the source of our joy and happiness, the thing we have to have, we can be blinded to seeing the beauty and the goodness of God's kingdom breaking in all around us all the time. John the Baptist was so fixated on his own two small expectations of what the Messiah would do that he didn't recognize what the Messiah was actually doing. You know, it was so kind of Jesus not to leave John in his despair, wasn't it? I mean, Jesus didn't berate John for having some wrong ideas or misplaced expectations. He just opened John's eyes to see how the kingdom of God was already coming. 
It wouldn't be too much longer before John would be beheaded. Uh, but I suspect his remaining days in prison were filled with joy. Enlarge your expectations. Embrace everlasting joy. So often for me, it's my expectations of how I want things to go with this church that aren't met the way I want them to be, right? You know, the, and that's what causes me to lose my joy. You know, every pastor wants to have their church with billions and billions of people, right? All the time, every Sunday. Yeah, I want God's kingdom to come here in the way I expect it to come. That doesn't always work out so well. So then over and over again, Jesus comes to me, often through some of you, and he shows me all the good things he's doing here, all the ways his kingdom is coming in ways that I perhaps never dreamed of. Enlarge your expectations and embrace everlasting joy. See, the kingdom of God isn't just coming at some point in the future. It is breaking into our lives and into our world all around us all of the time. That's what Jesus set in motion when he was raised from the dead. If you are watching for that, you can see it. And when you see it, you know that what God has begun, he is going to complete because that's what he does, right? He brings to completion the good work he's begun. Or as Isaiah said in another passage, of the increase of God's kingdom, there will be no end. The increase goes on and on and on forever. That's why I like the story about the Boring Conference. The people who attend that conference are training themselves to look for beauty and goodness and fascination in the most mundane of places. And in the same way, we can train ourselves to look for the beauty and goodness and fascination of all the ways God's kingdom is coming into our lives and into our world every day. You know, sometimes it's in the obviously supernatural ways that Isaiah prophesied about, like when we pray for the sick and they get healed or when someone we've been praying for gives their life to Jesus. But often, the kingdom comes in what appears to be more natural and seemingly mundane ways. Like when you feel peace, even though your circumstances are anything but peaceful. Or when you enjoy a good conversation with a friend. Or even better, with someone you don't see eye to eye with. Or when you manage to forgive your spouse rather than holding a grudge. I would go so far as to say that anytime we see beauty or goodness coming into this world, anytime we see love triumphing over hate or kindness and mercy being shown instead of indifference or cruelty or judgment, we're seeing a little bit of God's kingdom come. Yeah. Wouldn't it be something if we could become people who watch for that and see that every day instead of watching for and focusing on what's wrong with this world? Yeah, amen. Not that we deny reality, but like Adam said last week, we forgive reality so that our eyes are open to see God at work in all things. It's simply doing what we talk about all the time here. 
seeing God, seeing his presence in everything. And as Psalm 16 tells us, in his presence is fullness of joy. See, I suspect that doing this could make us grow in our everyday experience of God's everlasting joy. Open your eyes. Look for God's kingdom coming. Enlarge your expectations and embrace everlasting joy. Amen? Amen. So can I pray for that for us? There's a prayer in Ephesians that I've always loved. Uh, Paul prays for the Ephesian church that fits right into this. I'm going to draw from that as I pray here. So Abba Father, I thank you for your amazing love for us. I, I ask, Abba, that you would give to all of us, to each of us, a spirit of wisdom and revelation as we come to know you better and better. I pray that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened so that we would see what you see, that we would see all the ways your kingdom is coming in our own lives, in our church, in the world, every day. And, I, and as a result, I pray that we would experience more and more of your everlasting joy in our everyday lives, of the increase of your kingdom in us. May there be no.